This is CNN Breaking News. And this is a Fox News alert. Some We're coming on the air with breaking news, very sad news to tell the sports world. The LA Times is reporting that retired Los Angeles Lakers basketball star Kobe Bryant has been killed in a helicopter crash. It happened this morning. Good evening. Welcome to ESPN Sports Center. Zubin Mahenti. I'm Michael Lee's Breaking News. January 26th is the anniversary of Kobe Bryant's death. In the days, weeks, and months that have followed, here on Rejecting the Screen, Adam Stanko and I have spoken to so many connected to Kobe. This is part one of a two-part Kobe Stories series here on Rejecting the Screen. We're sure these stories from some familiar voices will have you shaking your head, raising your eyebrows, all while smiling a bit, remembering Kobe in different ways. It's well documented that Kobe spent a large part of his childhood in Italy. Upon his return to the States, he was immediately making an impression on the Philly hoop scene. Former Temple star and NBA big man Mark Jackson knew Kobe from their time in the famed Sunny Hill League together. Jackson was a few years older, yet knew Kobe was destined for greatness from an early age. His overall success to me wasn't a surprise because he always wanted to be great at the game. Um, and hindsight, looking back, he used to always do things. Like as a 12-year-old, we finished working out. The first thing he would do was put ice on his knees. He literally would wrap his knees, get the ice bags, get his ice bags, and he would wrap his knees. <laughs> and I was just like, man, what you doing that for? He's like, I want to play a long time. And I was like, you're only 12. He's like, I know, but I'm going to play for a lot more years for the rest of my life. And that was the first time I started seeing he was different than normal kids. Around that same time, Kobe looked up to another future NBA player from the Philly area who was a few years older, Alvin Williams. And what did the local high school icon Williams think of a middle school age Kobe? Good back then. You know, his father, um, Coach Coach Bryant, Joe Bryant, he coached us in the Sunny Hill League, our um, all-star team. Um, and Kobe was right there at practice. At night, we'd be at Gustine Lake, and he would be practicing with us. You know, his sister played volleyball, and he used to wear these the honeycomb volleyball knee pads. You know, I remember Patrick Ewing back in the day wearing the knee pads, <laughs> but he used to wear these big knee pads, skinny kid, but he had these big-ass knee pads. I was like, who is this kid? But he was good. Like, he would practice with us. And we were we were juniors. So he had to be, like, in eighth grade, maybe, seventh grade. And he was on the court. And I remember my dad one day taking me home from practice. and was like, all right, let me get the t- starting team straight. It's going to be Rashid. It's going to be you. It's going to be Tyrone. And the other kid, and I was like, Dad, he, he's, like, 12, 11, 13 years old. He's not playing on our team. And that's the first time, like, he really started practicing and playing with us. So Kobe's always been around. His family's always been great. And it was always, I mean, once he got older, it was great seeing him grow and develop until he, into the, to the player he, he ultimately became. One of the places Kobe was starting to explode on was the AAU circuit. He played on a team with Tim Thomas, who was either ranked right ahead or right behind Kobe as the top player in the 96 class, depending on which ranking system you went by, and also with Vince Carter. So think about that. Kobe, Vince, and Tim Thomas on the same AAU team. On the circuit, they played against former Ohio State All-American and current Grizzlies assistant coach, Scooney Penn. 
And Scooney told us that Kobe was just different than the other guys. I remember Kobe as high school. Um, you think about we played all over AAU, and I remember playing against Kobe's teams and Kobe being in tournaments and him just sitting in the gym all the time. Kobe was one of them kids that he was gra- he gravitated towards others because he's a kid who grew up in Europe. He didn't like he wasn't, and his dad was always around. I, I would say this: he 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 wasn't exposed to things that we were exposed to. You know, like here's a bunch of kids. We went on age with with our coach, and that was it. And after the games, we all hung out and we did dumb stuff teenagers did. He didn't. He wasn't that guy that was able to do that because a lot of times he had his family was there with him. Um, so I, I think that is pretty accurate. I feel that Kobe was a guy who who wanted to be in so many ways. He didn't care if you liked him or not on the court. He was who he was going to be. But off the court, I think that sometimes he wanted to transform into everyone else or something else so people would understand him or like him a little bit different. You know what I'm saying? Because, again, think mm-hmm. about the time. Allen Iverson was a popular guy. His style, Steph, you know, you can name those guys. Kobe wasn't the guy that you look at for swag and wasn't like that. He was – because he came up different. Like, he, he didn't have the typical basketball story like a lot of us come from. You know, his was a different journey. And and it's stupid that his journey doesn't seem cool. Like, Allen Iverson, after you get in trouble, your great comeback, that seems something cool. But you have a lot of people that can relate to that, and that got publicized. We'll get to more about Kobe trying to carve out his own persona in just a bit. But as his national reputation grew, his status as a local legend was exploding. There were even rumors of the Lower Marion High School prodigy practicing with the Sixers and dominating the Sixers star wing Jerry Stackhouse in games of one-on-one. Rex Walters was on the Sixers in 96 and told us how he remembered it. Kobe did come to practices or he would come afterwards and come work out at St. Joe's because me not knowing who Kobe was, I was like, you know, once again, I, I didn't follow high school basketball. I was an NBA player. I wasn't into that. I'm sitting there. I'm, 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 I'm leaving to go uh, home. I'm, I'm kind of straightening up in the locker room and, and Kobe sure enough walks in. And I'm like, just making conversation with this kid. I'm like, Hey, you know, uh, what you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm going to go work out. And I'm like, Oh, you're a pretty good player. Like, this guy had to be looking at me like, what, what are you, some kind of idiot or something? Because, you know, and then I'm like, well, you know, what schools you're looking at? He's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm talking to Kansas. I'm talking to Carolina. He's like, but there's one other thing I'm thinking about. And I'm like, oh, okay. I was like, well, hey, you know, Dean Smith was a great coach for Michael Jordan. You know, you should think about Carolina. Obviously, Coach Williams is my coach, great coach. You should think about those schools trying to trying to help out my guy. Uh, you know, next, next thing you know, next preseason game, this guy's freaking like, yelling over to his point guard, Nick Van X, like, hey, and I'm guarding. I'm like, I got a mouse over here. I got a mouse. I'm like, man, that's, that's a little disrespectful. I tried to help you, my man, and, and, and you're calling mouse in the house on me. So obviously he had to be thinking to himself, what is this guy talking about? So back to Kobe as the nation's top high school player and those rumors we are hearing of Kobe regularly beating Stackhouse one-on-one. We talked to Jeff Perlman, who wrote the incredible book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Laker dynasty. He said that story was all fabricated. It's crap. Like, it's actually crap. It's just total BS. And um, it's funny because uh, I basically I reached out to, because you hear all these stories, right? You hear all these stories about Kobe and he's 
he's with the Sixers and he's lighting them up and blah, blah, blah. And he was definitely a great player and definitely showed his skills. And the guys were like, yeah, this guy's going to be something. But um, I reached out to Stackhouse via Twitter. I, I profiled Stackhouse for the Wall Street Journal years ago. And I just reached out to him. Hmm. I don't have a tweet in front of me, but he wrote like, <laughs> I'm sure like, you, you, this is the first thing I think of when people say we're, we're so-and-so regret having spoken about Kobe. Like he basically said, I've never heard Kobe say they were true, but I've also never heard him say they were false. So F him. Um, <laughs> and like the thing that I, I think is really cool about Kobe and the, uh, and the Sixers workouts, he did not dominate Jerry Stackhouse at pure BS, but he took it to those guys. Um, Imagine being, I remember I ran college, I ran uh, cross country at University of Delaware. And I remember my first year freshman, freshman year, I went out to run with the rest of the team. And they were all seniors and these guys were like all state and all county and all these great runners. And I was terrified. Like I was absolutely terrified. I just wanted to hang with them. I was terrified. I was scared. I was just praying I'd be able to do it. This guy's running with the Philadelphia 76ers as a (laughs) high school kid and like holding his own. And doing it, like, that's insane. And then the other thing, when he was in high school, that I really like is he would work out. I got to remember the specifics. He would, I'm going to actually reread the book before it comes out. So, I, you know, um, which is sad that you have to do, but you do have to do is he, um, he would work out and he drove from one workout to another workout place in the summer and made sure the heat in his car would be at full blast as he was driving just to build up his endurance. So, like... I think he worked out at a track. It was like a 90-degree day outside in Philly, very humid, hot. Gets in the car, blasts the heat all the way, drives to the other workout. Like, he did little things like that that were just absolutely insane all the time. It's 1996, and you're Kobe Bryant. Ah, uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, I decided to see my talent. You have an unparalleled level of self-confidence. You've proven to yourself that you can run with the Sixers. And just a year prior, you watched as another high schooler, Kevin Garnett, got selected fifth overall in the 95 draft. So what does Kobe do? He becomes the first guard ever to skip college and enter the draft. And by the way... He was just 17 at the time, 17 years old. No, I have decided to skip college and take my talent to the NBA. Kobe, of course, gets selected 13th overall by the Charlotte Hornets. With the 13th pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Charlotte Hornets select Kobe Bryant from Lower Marion High School in Pennsylvania. To immediately trade him to the Lakers for Vladi. Coming into that draft, everyone expected him to end up in L.A., and we talked to a couple of people on the pod who were with teams in that year's lottery. First up, former Vancouver Grizzlies coach and GM Stu Jackson. The Grizzlies had the number three pick and ended up taking Sharif Abdul-Rahim. But we straight up asked Stu, why didn't the Grizz take Kobe Bryant? You know, he, he was a high school player. We were a very young franchise, and... You know, uh, I, I think to draft a high school player at that point in our development as a franchise would have really uh, been going out on a limb, not having this player proven himself 
against, you know, a higher level of competition. Although I will tell you, you know, Kobe was extremely talented. But the other aspect of Kobe was he was not going to any franchise other than the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, he got drafted by a different franchise, but that quickly turned around and he Mm -hmm. ended up in Los Angeles. And everyone in the draft knew that at that point. So we didn't think that was an option for Kobe Bryant coming to a new country or to, to Vancouver uh, to play basketball. So he was sort of off the board. Leaving the country to play might not have been in Kobe's plans, but would he have played for the Dallas Mavericks, who had the ninth overall pick? Remember at the time, the Mavs had Jason Kidd running the point, and later in their careers, Kobe tried desperately to get the Lakers to trade for Kidd. Well, former Nets head coach Butch Beard was an assistant with the Mavericks in 96, and he told us that he thinks they had a shot at getting the high school sensation to come to Dallas. Here's the best story of all, and a true story as well. I was an assistant coach with Jim Clemens and also uh, uh, at the Dallas (laughs) Mavs. We're in the draft, and I I asked the people who, you know, run the draft, I mean, all our uh, scouts. I said, who's the best guy in the draft? They said, Kobe Bryant. He's a high school kid, but he's not, you know, he's not, uh, you know, we, we, we don't know. We think he's going to be the best. And they didn't know whether at that particular time they were going to break up three J's. Okay. So I made a comment to them. I said, why don't we bring him in and try him out? I know that the word was out there that he only wanted to go to L.A. I said, but I think he would want to play with Jason and Jimmy if you all think that he's going to be the best player in the draft. We were afraid to do that. We ended up drafting Samaki Walker. I, I'll never forget. I was running around all over, you know, working out Eric Dampier and some other players. and You know, but I said, man, that's what we should have done. I sat there, even those five minutes before we drafted, I said, we should draft this kid. Why were they afraid to even, not even to bring him in? Because the word had gotten out there that he wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't going to work out for other teams Mm -hmm. and things like that. I said, I think he would come. I think he would come and at least give us a, you know, a look-see. I really do. A (laughs) look-see. I guess we'll never know how NBA history would have turned out if Kobe went to the Mavs. What we do know is that Kobe and L.A. were obviously perfect for each other. At his first ever NBA media day, Kobe said, quote, I've been waiting to go out and compete with guys like Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, and Cedric Sabalos, but I'm really excited to have a chance and learn from them. Now, the word learn is fitting because Kobe was the ultimate student of the game. When we interviewed NBA Hall of Fame photographer Andy Bernstein, he told us about that media day in 1996. It was actually the first time he met Kobe and the start of a long friendship that we'll get to later in the podcast. I love retelling this story because it's really my favorite story of him from like this whole 20 plus years that I knew him. And uh, here's this 18-year-old rookie on my set at media day and like any other young rookie or traded player, some, a player I hadn't met before, 
before I take a picture, I go and introduce myself. You know, he's standing there and he's waiting for me to shoot. And I walk up, I say, hey, Kobe, I'm Andy Bernstein. I'm your Lakers team photographer. And he looks me straight in the eye and he goes, well, I know who you are. <laughs> hmm, okay. <laughs> um, you know, later on when I had teenagers and I would hear something like that, he's kind of a smart assy kind of remark. But I'm like, how is that possible? Because, you know, we never met before. And he says, well, I had all your pictures in my room and posters uh, hanging up. You know, I grew up. You know? <laughs> I'm like, geez, there's got to be something about this kid that's different because nobody reads photo credits on posters. And uh, he, I found out very quickly what a student of the game he was to the point where he would literally look at photo credits on posters mm-hmm. and study photos and dissect them. And that came full circle 20 years well, yeah, it was 21 years later when we were doing our book together. And uh, he told me about his process of how he broke down my photos, Nat's photos, you know, video footage, that he would literally break it down like, you know, like a surgeon or, you know, somebody in a medical lab almost. Um, and it really was fascinating to me because I, I would never think that, you know, I would think here's a nice picture of, a young Kobe guarding Michael Jordan, but he he looked at it completely different. <laughs> you know, he looked at it from a technical standpoint. We'll get into Andy's experience in writing the book with Kobe later, but it says so much about who Kobe was that he was studying credits on posters from Andy and from Nat Butler, another legendary photographer we interviewed on the podcast. Eight seconds left. Kobe showed flashes of brilliance his rookie year, but only started six games, and you probably remember his disastrous stretch against the Jazz when he shot four air balls late in Game 5 of the Western Conference Semis. He later called it the defining game of his career. Former NBA player and former head coach of the Phoenix Suns, Earl Watson, first met Kobe right after that dreadful game. It was at UCLA, where Earl was a standout freshman who shared the backcourt with another future pro. And they were both blown away with Kobe's work ethic that summer. As Earl told us on the podcast, Kobe was on a mission. Baron Davis and I would be walking to class literally about 7.15 in the morning. And we would see Kobe entering the Wooden Center, which is, you know, a training facility on campus next to Pauley Pavilion around 730 because it takes time to get to class. It's a big campus. And we'd be like, what's up, Cole? We speak. Always check to see if he was playing pickup at three with the legendary runs, which was, you know, which say is Rico's runs. He brought it back. And Cole be like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to play later. I'll see y'all later. He'd walk into the gym with his trainer. We'd be going to class and we saw him religiously Monday through Friday. We would get out of class about 2.15, be running past the Wooden Center. He would just be leaving the Wooden Center at 2.30. And Baron and I look at each other and be like, damn. <laughs> like, <laughs> Cole, you going to play at three? Like, yeah, I'm going to go get something to eat and drink real quick. I'll be there at three. And he had come play at three. And then the games would last from 3 to 5.30. And at that time, you had everyone, the entire Lakers team, because – they were on a mission to get better throughout the summer to compete for the Western Championship. You have, you know, Shaq in there. You have Derek Fisher. You have uh, the entire Robert Ory, the entire roster, Rick Fox. And you have the young Clippers of 
you know, like, you know, you know, just the young Clipper days and it would continue to grow throughout the years when Lamar and Kenyon Dooling and Darius Miles entered the league later throughout the you know next four years. But his dedication, he would stay after the pickup games and shoot again, but he was consecutively there every time consistently. He was focused. He was driven. He dominated the games in his three courts. It's a winner court, a loser court, and the last court, he would dominate the games and he just continued to grow in front of our eyes. While Kobe's maniacal desire to get better was starting to take shape, he was struggling to find his true identity. Here's Three Ring Circus author Jeff Perlman again. He explained to us how he had interviewed little-known Kobe teammates Eric Chenoweth and Paul Shirley, and in terms of Kobe finding that identity, early on in his career, it wasn't going well. This is my first interview about this book, really, and it does feel weird speaking, it's uncomfortable speaking negatively about Kobe and sort of in this way, but he just wasn't that good to these guys. You know, he was kind of a jerk to them. He was kind of a bully to them. And he was one of those guys who saw what he could get away with with you. And the best thing, like I talked to Mike Penberth, the former Laker guard a lot. Mike came out of master's college. He was a nobody. And he learned really early on, like, you don't take Kobe Bryant's crap. You have to stand up to him. You have to show that you're not just going to be there and get, you know, beaten up. Um, and Kobe liked playing the alpha and he liked showing. I, he's, a, he's a weird guy um, in that I think he really wanted to be he saw what the NBA was at the time and who were the kings of the image of the NBA. And it was guys like Iverson and Stephon Marbury where you're hardened and you got this edge to you. And Kobe didn't, he just didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't brought up that way. He wasn't a kid from Coney Island, like Marbury. He wasn't a kid from Newport news, like Iverson. He was brought up in Italy and then he was brought up in the suburbs and he took Brandy to his prom. So it was trying to find people who understood sort of, the, almost like the battles of being a suburban kid, but struggling with that image. I thought that was a really interesting part of Kobe Bryant. So I tried to speak to a lot of people about that and what that is. It's really, really weird to show up in the NBA and think you're the best player in the NBA. Like, that's weird. Like, that's a weird thing. And that like, you're just as good as Jordan and you want to challenge Jordan you should be starting right now. The Lakers have Eddie Jones, but you know, and Eddie Jones was a really good player, but no, I should be, I don't know why I'm not starting. And I mean, there was one point, um, Dale Harris told me where Kobe complained to him, I think his rookie year about why wasn't he calling post-up plays for Kobe? And Dale Harris is like, cause we have Shaquille O'Neal playing center for us. You idiot. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, he just like, I don't think he knew who he was. And I don't, I don't really buy the, like, after Eagle Colorado, I decided to get hard. Like, he just, it was all like, it was a lot of try, auditioning personas, you know, like, and trying different things. And I'm going to be this way. And you would hear him talk, like, I was thought, I think speech patterns are generally a pretty fascinating gateway into who someone is. And I'm like, mm -hmm. Kobe was a yes, sir, no, sir, um, complete 100% proper English kid. You know, like, he just was like a kid. He was like a, you know, it's like there's a line in one of my favorite movies is Creed. And Rocky says to Adonis Creed when he first meets him, he says, you talk good. I can tell you've been to college. <laughs> I'm like, Kobe Bryant wasn't like, he wasn't, he didn't have that edge to him that Iverson and Marbury did. Um, and he felt like he should. 
you know? Mm-hmm. He just felt like mm-hmm. he should, so he kind of imitated it. So I don't think it was just Eagle. I don't think it was just after Eagle that he got edgy. And he got the tattoos, and he tried doing this whole me against the world thing. I just think he was always auditioning personas at that age. I really do. There was also that story that he told from a writer who was doing a one-on-one with Carl Malone. It was the last Lakers game before Thanksgiving, and Kobe was leaving the locker room, and Carl Malone called him over while the reporter was doing the interview and whispered in Kobe's ear that you can't just leave the locker room like that. And then all of a sudden, Kobe then goes around to every player to say, Happy Thanksgiving. So Kobe, at times, just didn't get it. And as with all parts of Kobe, even being his teammate was complicated. While it was a struggle for some Lakers to connect with him, a few of his teammates did earn his respect and his friendship. Robert Sacre, who spent four seasons with the Lakers, told us his secret to learning to play alongside Kobe. Just realizing he has flaws and he's just as human as you and I. And granted, now, when and in his mind, he doesn't feel like he is, you know, but that's what makes him so great. But at the same time, you got to look at him like he can do these supernatural things, but he also is human. And, you know, sometimes I, I felt I was, I had a good enough relationship where I could talk to him and I could call him out on certain things and, you know, and, and he could take it not as a, he, we just had a cool relationship, man. And like, uh, I'm glad and grateful to be able to say I played with him and, I think uh, looking back, you know, uh, you are starstruck when you immediately see the Mamba. You know, everything is the Mamba, right? But at the same time, when you realize, you know, he put he puts on the pants just like you and I. So that kind of brings you back to normal. He gets sick. He, he has good days. He has bad days. He's just like he's just a human being. So I think that's really what boiled it down for me that I. Was, I was cool with him because I was like, man, I would talk mad smack to him all the time. <laughs> Call him old man and all that shit all the time. Another Gonzaga guy, Adam Morrison, shared a similar thought on how he earned Kobe's respect. I think, to be honest, uh, just playing hard in practice and not um, kissing his ass, if that's the right way to put it. Um, yeah. You know, I think he was such a smart, highly intelligent person um, that he could tell if guys were kind of kissing his ass and trying to buddy a buddy up to him. I just treated him like a normal teammate, and he treated me the same. And so if you showed up every day and played hard and competed against him and um, put in the work, he loved guys like that. And, um, you know, I was... I was lucky enough to be around him and to be able to see what a true, um, it's not just basketball wise, but somebody that like squeezed every ounce of their ability out of themselves every single day. I was, you don't meet people like that a lot in your life. And if you do, you should be thankful. Um, because he was a guy that literally, you know, squeezed the sponge as hard as he can and got every ounce and every percentile, percentile out of his abilities out. Um, you know, I've always told young kids and I coach high school here that he was a self-made player and they kind of look at you funny because they, they assume when you're in the NBA that you're just, 
God put a wand over you and right. said you're going to be good. Kobe wasn't the fastest guy. He didn't have the biggest hands. Yes, he was athletic, but was he the most athletic guy? No. Was he the strongest? No. He was the guy that fucking worked, outworked every other player in the NBA, and he was self-made. He was obsessive with how hard he worked. Um, and so, like I said, if you had the same – I'm not saying I was similar in that respect, but I played hard in practice and I competed, and so he he uh, liked liked me, I guess. So you earned his respect by, by playing hard, not kissing his ass, treating him like a teammate, but how did you – how did you really get to know him? He was really good friends with Roni Turioff before, and I played with Roni in, in, in college. And so when I got traded there, you know, him and Roni had a good relationship. So Roni was like, you know, look after my guy. He's not an L.A. type kid. You're going to have to really, you know, help him out and make him feel welcome. And, and Kobe did that from the beginning. Um you know, and then he was a thinker. He wasn't a guy that just, he was obsessed with basketball, but he didn't want to talk hoops the whole time. Um, and I'm similar. I like politics and, and things that other people probably would find uh, weird, I guess you could say. And he had this similar type mindset. Um, so he liked films and stuff. We talk about films and, um, we, you know, we visited the White House and we talked politics and things of that nature and things that uh, we're glad that there's no cell phone cameras around at the time. Um, so, <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. He just, uh, he just was a cat that uh, liked to compete and liked to win. And um, he just wanted to kick people's ass. And so if you had that similar mindset or, or goal, he fucked with you, you know, that's the best way to put it. Um, and you know, I just was always thankful. He always publicly defended me numerous times. Um, and so he was just a good dude, man. He was just a cool person. Um, he made me feel welcome when I was there. His family, his Vanessa was always so kind to my, my daughter's mom, who was my girlfriend at the time mm -hmm. when my daughter was three years old down there. They were always like, whatever you guys need, um, holler at us. I mean, we were lucky enough to be out of some social functions with us. There was so kind and made us feel welcome as they could tell we were fish out of water we weren't used to la we didn't know what we were doing you know we we're young kids from the northwest you know people don't even know right. that state exists half the time you know um and so it just was really thankful reflecting back on my time with him to be able to uh say that i was with a guy that uh was a savant was a genius was a, somebody that showed you that uh you know, in your personal life, are you working hard enough? Are you really fucking grinding? Are you doing whatever you're doing, whatever your passion is, are you doing it hard enough? And uh, that's the biggest thing I took away from his passing was it was a reflection of my time with him. It was a reflection on, I had to look in the mirror, you know, I think a lot of people did, even if you didn't know him on that level, it's like, Hey man, this guy transitioned from being the best athlete to being, you know, an Oscar winner, but he was fucking all into his kids, man. He was all into how can I be the best at whatever I'm doing at the time? And like I said, you don't meet people like that very often that truly, truly live by that code. No, I think it's impossible to talk about Kobe and his teammates without talking about Shaq. When you look back at the Kobe Shaq relationship, what do you think about? That they hated each other, that they somehow managed to win 
three championships, how they could have won more, but winning three championships is a remarkable accomplishment because they hated each other. They were just polar opposite personalities, locker rooms divided. There were Kobe guys, there were Shaq guys, the reporters, there were Kobe guys, there were Shaq guys. And it speaks to putting Phil Jackson on even a higher pedestal that is could be possible that he somehow was able to keep all of this together. I had always heard the stories about the differences in personality and how it just was never going to work based upon how they saw each other. It's always what I had heard. And no matter who it was telling the story, whether it was a secondhand story I had heard about Magic Johnson being at practice and seeing how they handled practice on a daily basis or the things Kobe would mutter under his breath, or it was just reporters who were just catching glimpses of it. It always seemed to be that they were and always will be remembered as the NBA's version of the rock star duo that could have reached the greatest heights of success and they still would never have been happy. And through the years, so many people have weighed in on the issues between Shaq and Kobe, but two of the writers we interviewed might have more expertise in that relationship than anyone, especially given the benefit of hindsight. First, here's author Jeff Perlman, who again wrote an entire book about the two stars, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. When we asked him about this very subject, he told us a story that he had been telling his relatives, but hadn't shared publicly. I was with Shaq in Atlanta, and he was really cool. I probably got, whatever, an hour and 20 minutes with him. You know, he was in the Turner Studios. He was in his little office. He was very, very nice. I couldn't have been more gracious, truly. And at the end of the interview, I said to him something like, uh, the one thing that seems different between you and Kobe is you always had nicknames. You gave yourself nicknames, you know, the big Aristotle, Superman, Shaq Diesel, whatever. But it always seemed like there was a wink and a, and, a, and a laugh to it. And Kobe called himself Black Mamba, but he took it seriously. And I think this is actually the last thing I was actually leaving. And Sack said, now you know what I was dealing with, brother. And like, I just thought that was really kind of telling and interesting. Like, Shaq was always in on the joke. I always saw that. He got the joke. Like, we are huge men getting paid millions of dollars to throw a ball in a hoop. You know, like he got the joke and he got the fleeting nature of it all and I'm going to enjoy it the best I can. And I don't think Kobe Bryant was ever in on the joke. I really don't. I don't think he ever was in on the joke. Like he, Shaq called himself the big Aristotle and he thought it was funny. Kobe <laughs> called himself the black mamba because he viewed himself as a black mamba who's going to strike and kill you. Like that is different. Those are two different yeah. approaches. I just thought that was very interesting. Legendary NBA writer Howard Beck covered the Lakers for the LA Daily News from 1997 to 2004. So he obviously watched the relationship play out in real time. And he essentially came to the same conclusion as Perlman did. I've said this for years, and it's been kind of validating in a way to see in recent years as these guys have discussed it more in various settings, including with each other when they interviewed each other on NBA TV. I think I can remember the, the, the first time we had our first fight, um, and you looked and said, okay, this is crazy. I did say that. Yeah, I, I did. And Kobe said what I have been saying for years, and it was good to finally hear it from, from him, that the biggest problem between them, to me, fundamentally, was not all the obvious stuff that people always talked about. 
alpha dog this, alpha dog that, and who's getting more touches, who's the offense designed around, who's getting the shots, all this stuff that was about power struggle for the team. It's not that those things are invalid and it's not that they weren't true. It's just that to me, I thought the biggest problem between them was the fact that Kobe was obsessive about the game and had the highest work ethic of, and I, this is not just a basketball of anybody I think I've met in any walk of life period. And Shaq did not have that. Shaq was built differently. And, and Shaq was so uh, just physically dominant and skilled and such a badass that he didn't need to necessarily work in the same way that, that Kobe thought he needed to, but Kobe knew that. And so Kobe had a harder time respecting and deferring to Shaq. And so while Shaq was the logical first option in, in an era where having a big bruising big man to, who, who could not be guarded by one person was the obvious first option. Kobe's feeling was, yeah, but I've got all these incredible skills and I work on them constantly and I'm constantly adding to my game. And so if you, you take that part of it and then you add on the, uh, you know, the, there, there is some power struggle and there is some personality differences and all kinds of other stuff. And yeah, then th that's where you get a feud that lasts for, you know, the better part of eight years together. But yeah, um, the, the difference in mindset and approach to the game was very much an undercurrent the entire time. And it really didn't burst into public view until that 0304 season where, you know, Shaq and Kobe are fighting again. And Kobe ends up issuing that statement through Jim Gray, where he calls out Shaq for like six straight paragraphs, including calling him out on his work ethic and delaying toe surgery the one year, all the stuff that people in the organization as a whole had been mad about or, or irrit irritated about for a long time. And Kobe up until that time had never fired back publicly at Shaq. It was always Shaq taking shots at Kobe. It was never Kobe really firing at Shaq or having people like whisper stuff about him. Like a lot of stuff came from Shaq in his camp in those early years. And Kobe just kind of took it. And that was the one day where Kobe really just like unloaded everything. I always say it wasn't a linear thing, right? It's not like, you know, day one, they're fine. Day two, things are a little tense. Day three, things get worse. And then eventually somebody snaps. It was this, this uh, accordion kind of effect where it was like, they're fine and they're not fine. And then they win a championship and they're jumping into each other's arms. And then all of a sudden the next year, things start to erode again. And so it was all over the map. So it wasn't like there was a, Hey, you've been taking this for a long time. When are you going to fire back? Um, and I wouldn't really, that's not really the way, kind of thing I would ask somebody anyway. It was more of anytime Shaq did take a swipe and they're always kind of coded you know, he had these ways of, you know, these, these kind of quotes where it would be like, you know, uh, I've never been a shooter before, but I just know that, you know, if your shot's not falling, you got to take it to the rack, you know, or, you know, some guys were taking ill advised shots or, you know, you know, I mean, there's stuff like that. It would be some guys, some guys, well, who else would it have been? <laughs> I mean, right. I think some of those, my first year, I think a couple of those shots were actually at Eddie Jones. Um, but eventually the, every time he said that it was really about Kobe. And, you know, um, you know, I, 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 I it, it, when they, when it came up and when it was clear, then it would be, Hey, Kobe, you know, <laughs> like typical tattletale type stuff. Hey, Kobe, Shaq said this, any response, but Kobe never did. Like Kobe never really engaged in that stuff. Like I, I, I think you'd have a really hard time finding a, um, any record of, of Kobe taking shots at Shaq other than the one we're talking about where he gave this big statement to Jim Gray. Now that, this was me at my craziest. 
this is this is what I'm thinking. I'm going to drive to practice. We're going to fight. It's going to be awesome. I knew I knew the fire that I lit. I knew what I said, and you knew what he said. You knew what you said. So okay, this is it. That's part one of Kobe's stories here on Rejecting the Screen. Subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss part two later in the week. And make sure to share with anyone who you think would be interested. And Noah, we've got so many good stories coming up on part two. Epic workout stories, Kobe's trash talk and intimidation, the respect Kobe's opponents had for him around the league, and of course, Kobe post-career. Again, that's all coming up on part two of Kobe's stories here on Rejecting the Screen. Rejecting the Screen is on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam's on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Rejecting the Screen, Kobe Stories is a Locked On Podcast Network production. It was written and produced by me, Adam Stanko, and Noah Kozlov. Editing and sound engineering by Doug Branson. We'd also like to thank each of our guests on Rejecting the Screen for sharing their stories. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.